378, Chapters 1 and 2 of Sense and Sensibility. Book talk begins right after some housekeeping. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 378. It's not about the money, money, money. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy and our patrons at patreon.com slash craftlet. Visit the site and find out what kinds of rewards await you for supporting Craftlit. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello, and welcome to Sense and Sensibility. It's good to be back. I've been away for a while preparing for this book, which is a good thing because the beginning of this book is really actually deceptive in its simplicity. It isn't simple. A lot gets communicated. So we will get to that shortly. But first, since this is the beginning of a new book, we have some new listeners, and I wanted to give you the rundown on how things work here on Craftlit. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm a writer and a podcaster and a mother and a knitter and a designer, and I used to teach high school English, and then I taught at the University of Arizona. All for the last nine years, I have been podcasting every week about classic literature. And that is what we are going to talk about and listen to today. We have, at the beginning of the podcast, crafty talk, whatever I found that's interesting to share, stuff that people have sent in to me. And then we get onto the good stuff, the book talk. Now, if you are not interested in any crafty chat, you might have noticed that at the beginning of the episode, I had a little bitty announcement before the music saying episode, chapter number, and when the book talk will start. Once you have that piece of information, if you want to fast forward through the opening, you can go right ahead and do so. No one will ever know. <laughs> so I have the chapter number and the episode number at the beginning because years ago, a listener said that she was out running and her iPod screen didn't show anything useful, no useful information. So I've adjusted how I open the show and I've adjusted how I do the show notes as well. Now, if you're new to the show, you may not know that the show has its own dedicated app. This is free, and you can get it for iOS devices, Android devices, and Windows 8 devices. And you can listen to everything on there. Plus, if you wanted to be a premium member and get a whole other book at the same time, you can do it very easily through the app, and that is a streaming subscription. If you want to be a premium member but you want to download the audio, you can follow the link in the show notes at craftlit.com to find out all about how to become a downloading member. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I had some housekeeping to do, and one of those pieces of housekeeping is to say thank you to my Hangout companions. We had a little technical trouble with the Flash situation because it's a Flash-based website, and sometimes the microphone thing doesn't work quite right. But we still had a very interesting conversation about Herland. And I think the consensus at the end 
of, of that conversation and a lot of email conversations that I've been having over the last three weeks was really glad we read the book, really not my favorite, which I think is perfectly reasonable. And one of the reasons why I chose Sense and Sensibility to be our next book. That, plus we have an awesome reader for you. Maya Daguerre, she lives in Northern England and her voice will soothe you so much. You're going to love it. I also wanted to send out a big thank you to my subbable subscribers. You may have heard two weeks ago Monday, there was a big announcement that Subbable, run by John Green and his brother Hank Green, as a way for free content creators who, who are putting out free content on the internet, a way for them to make a living, hopefully. Subbable, because of the way Amazon decided to change its business, that drove Subbable out of the marketplace. And so Subbable merged with Patreon. That means they moved all of us over. It was a spectacularly simple process. If you didn't hear about it at the time and you were a Subbable subscriber, you need to know two things. One, go back to the Subbable page. You will see a little migration window. It will actually take you through the steps so that without any fuss or muss, you can move yourself right on over to Patreon. However, the thing that won't move is your bank. So take a look at the perks, take a look at what you've got in your perk bank, and if you want to get something, get it over on Subbable. Rewards are a different system on Patreon. There are still lots of rewards and some new ones that are going to be showing up shortly. Plus, Patreon has an activity feed, which is very different from Subbable's. Subbable was a one-way conversation. Patreon expects <laughs> an all-way conversation between me, between you, between other listeners. So if you haven't checked out how the Patreon setup works, please take a look. It's patreon.com slash craftlit. And you can see all about signing up. You do not have to spend any money if you don't want to. It just might be a good idea to be on that board so that when something is happening over there, you get the notice. You can pledge anything from a penny to like $10,000 a month, which would be lovely, but really, you don't have to do that. It looks like it's set at $1. You can alter that. That's just fine. But you can select your own amount. You can check out the reward feed and you will be able to get the podcast episodes over there as well. Once they go live, I go to Patreon and I post them. So that is a new venue for really interesting rewards and a different kind of conversation. And if that weren't enough, during the hiatus from doing books on the show, we got ready to launch our third Defarge book. This is What Would Madame Defarge Knit? Volume 3, Defarge Does Shakespeare. And if you're not on the Defarge mailing list and didn't see the patterns, wow, they are gorgeous. I've been living with this information, with this knowledge for so long, and they are so beautiful. So there's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to www.mdfk.com. What would Madame Defarge knit? And take a look at the gorgeousness that is listed under patterns for volume three. And people who pre-ordered the book, by now you should have gotten your free Little Will pattern 
which was made for us by Donna Payton, who is a listener and a fabulous designer and knitter and an all-around really unbelievably awesome person. So huge thanks to Donna. And to all of the Defarge designers, over time, the patterns that you guys have created for these books are just spectacular. So thank you. Well, now that you're all caught up on my last three weeks, I hope your last three weeks were wonderful as well. I hope you got to do fun things. And I hope, for those in the Northern Hemisphere, that your spring is starting to show. Ours, sadly, is gray and rainy today, but rain instead of snow, so I feel that that is definitely a move forward in the grand scheme of springtime-ness. <laughs> so, sense and sensibility. Well, one of the reasons why this episode had no crafty talk except for the housekeeping part is because the opening of this book isn't hard to understand. It's just laying down a very complicated framework that the rest of the book stands on. And it's not so desperate that if you didn't understand a piece of it here or there that the rest of the book would kind of fall apart for you the way some some books actually are. But here it's more of a, well, actually it's more of a character building thing. You have your exposition at the beginning of the book. Like normal, you get to meet your characters and the groundwork that's being laid for them is just as important as the plot groundwork that's being laid by their circumstance. And there are some subtle and not-so-subtle things that Jane Austen is doing with these characters in the beginning that I wouldn't want you to miss. So before we get to the topic of money, <laughs> which is the title of the episode, we need to talk about the title of the book. Because sense and sensibility turns out not to mean... Well, not precisely what I thought it meant. The sense part, sure, we can get it. And especially if you've seen the movie version by Ang Lee with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet, you know that Emma Thompson is playing the sensible daughter. And it's not just that she's clever or intelligent, it's that she has good sense. She makes good decisions, she makes rational decisions, and these are the character traits that you will see in the beginning of the book, but you'll also see do various things to her as we go through the book. So that leaves the sensibility part. Here's where I didn't know this before. That term sensibility turns out to have shown up for the first time in the 1500s. Fine, that's great. However, by the 1700s, which is when we start getting the Age of Enlightenment and a lot of big philosophical thinkers, the word really took on an extra layer of weight. And part of what that weight stood for was paying attention to sensations or your perception. And so by the, by the time we hit the Age of Enlightenment, this actually, although it doesn't sound like it, was embraced by quite a few Enlightenment thinkers because this was a huge break. It was relying on you as an individual and your own perception, your own emotional responses. It was having you rely on that to make your decisions or just to live your life instead of relying on divine intervention or divine inspiration or some kind of divine intermingling of your life with God's. And this was a huge, huge switch. 
And obviously you have people on the other side who are like, oh, no, sensation, that leads to immorality. And it's an interesting parallel discussion to what's going on on the premium feed with Dorian Gray and immorality over there. Now, by the time you hit the late 1700s, things have morphed again. So you're moving out of the Age of Enlightenment. You're heading towards the Romantics. And these descriptions of sensibility should ring all sorts of romantic bells for you. Not little case R, but uppercase R, big romantic. By now, the term has started to take on what I, what I thought sounded like kind of a hippie tinge to it, that this was this was you being in touch with your emotional side. It was about you being sensitive to art and to beauty and to love and to expressions of these things that you would find in a daisy or in a cloud that you wandered lonely as. And and this is where the the sensibility part headed by the time Jane Austen comes along. So Jane Austen was born December 16th, 1775. She started writing something that looks like Sense and Sensibility in 1795, when she was 19 and and eventually turned 20 that year. And scholars believe that this thing that she wrote back then was the rudimentary bit of Sense and Sensibility because it was originally named Eleanor and Marianne. And those are the names of our two protagonists. And it makes sense to have two protagonists if we've got sense and we've got sensibility. However, that doesn't happen in Pride and Prejudice. It's really Elizabeth Bennet's book. Yeah, we love Darcy. No doubt. Fine. But it's Elizabeth's book. Here, we have a pretty balanced narrative that we're about to get into, and it's balanced between these two women, these two young women. And that's Pretty impressive, actually. It's a a pretty hard thing to pull off. So she started it when she was 19. That was 1795, but it did not get published. She didn't finish it, and it didn't get published until October 1811. It was published under the name By a Lady, and her next book, Pride and Prejudice, was published under the name By the Lady Who Brought You Sense and Sensibility. (laughs) And so she was completely unnamed. She made it all the way through persuasion. She was working on another book when she died, and she died uh, July 18th and 1817. They now think it was Addison's disease. Uh, For a long time, they didn't know what it was. But she died, and it was her brother, one of her five brothers, who posthumously published Persuasion and wrote a special introduction that fessed up and exposed Jane's name to the world changing it forever, certainly changing our lives, and also Mark Twain's, which we'll talk about later. So by the 1790s, just around the time when she starts putting this book together, there's kind of a backlash against the sensibility thing about this emotional stuff. And and it's interesting because that means that as the romantics come in, people start to question the attitudes and the mindsets that created the romantics, which is probably why it kind of rang hippie bells for me that there were these two sides of society at the time who were in conflict with each other. The The anti-sensibility people thought called it a cult, the cult of sensibility. And of course, the other 
people called the other side rationalists and boring, I think is what they called them. <laughs> Passionless, boring people. So it is against this backdrop that we start the text with a very complicated bit of money business. And I say at the opening of today's episode, it's not about the money, which is partly true, but the money is important. And way back when I was teaching high school, we got to uh, the part of the Scarlet Letter early on in the Scarlet Letter where the reasoning behind Hester marrying Chillingworth is discussed. And I remember one of the boys in class, and I even think I, I mentioned this when we did Scarlet Letter on the podcast. One of my boys called Hester a gold digger. And it was really interesting to watch what happened in class because the girls kind of turned on him. And even some of the boys were hanging back and not commenting because after everything that you had read at that point, you kind of understood that a woman who didn't marry well would be destitute. I mean, she really doesn't have a whole lot in the way of choices. She can be a school teacher, she can be a prostitute, and maybe a governess, which is kind of like a school teacher. And that's that's about it. You don't have a lot to go on if you don't have an income, and you can't have an income if you don't have a husband because of the way the laws work. So you would need to be thinking very carefully about who you marry, not just why you're going to marry them emotionally, but also sensibly, wisely. Because I, I think they had to be fairly forward-thinking in, uh, in terms of time, which is an interesting point that got brought up in one of the books that I was reading about this. Conventional wisdom, which I know I've repeated before, is that life expectancy at this time was really quite low, which is true if you just look at the numbers. But if you really look at the numbers and you do the mean, mode, median, all that stuff, what you find is that it skews low because of infant mortality. And we know from these books that we've read that, you know, in a land without antibiotics, without, I mean, just without aspirin, for God's sake, but without antibiotics, without immunizations, without vaccines and antivirals and steroids and all of the things that we have kind of come to rely on, without those, babies die at a really shockingly high rate. And you don't have to look very far on the planet to see where that's still happening. I'm always marveling at women in these books whenever there is a character who is described, because you don't hear it very often in the books. It was so commonplace that you would have lost one, two, three, five, nine children between getting pregnant and having a live birth. And then there's all the kids who never make it to their first birthday or to their fifth. And so that was kind of the cutoff. If you made it past your fifth birthday, you had a very good chance of living a long time, way past 45 or 50, which is how we wind up seeing people like Benjamin Franklin and Wordsworth. I mean, you know, there's Sir Walter Scott. There are all these uh, people who are very famous to us who we have these pictures in our mind because of portraits that were painted or sketches that were drawn, and they're old <laughs> by, by anyone's standard. And yet we've, we've had this thing, oh, well, the life expectancy was very low. Well, now I have an answer for you. I was kind of happy to learn that. And along with life expectancy comes the need for a stable income. Now, I, I learned way more than I probably needed to in order to be able to take you through this part of the book. 
you have a granddaddy with no children who lets his nephew, adult nephew, come and live with him. This is Daddy Dashwood, Mommy Dashwood, and the three girls, Dashwood. Those are our girls, Eleanor, Marianne, Margaret. Boom. Now you would expect that those family members being the ones who are living with the old gentleman, that the estate and the fortune, which is not like a pirate treasure fortune, it's just the all the money fortune, that all of that would have been left to that family. Wrong, because they really, really wanted everything to go through the male line. Now, so far you're thinking, yeah, but there isn't one. I mean, it stops with Daddy Dashwood. Oh ho, not so fast. Daddy Dashwood was married before, and he had a son. And that first wife had money. And he's been living off what's called the moiety of her estate, his first wife's estate. And the way the moiety works out is that the estate, the financial part of the estate, half of it, the surviving spouse can live off of, pulling interest off of, but they cannot touch the principal. The remainder of that and the other half will then go to their son. This was a way that parents could guarantee that their children, their children were looked after, and when done properly, also their spouse. So at the outset, we have this major event happen that all rests on where the estate goes. For me, in my modern, with my modern eyes, ears, and senses, I am horrified, especially after reading Herland. I am horrified at how things are going to get put into place. But what I had to get in my thick head was, this was actually pretty normal. It's not out of the ordinary, People who read in the book in 1811 wouldn't have batted an eye, just are getting the information that they need in order to move on with the book. Now, we meet all of our main characters, sort of, in the first two chapters. We definitely meet our antagonists, or at least one set of antagonists, and we are told about our heroines, our protagonists, our two women but we don't really meet them today. Next week we do. Today we just find out what the circumstances are that they live in, and that's plenty, trust me. Because chapter one lays down that groundwork. Chapter two is a discussion about that groundwork and one of the most brilliant pieces of writing I have ever seen in exposing someone's character purely by the way the conversation descends. From a high moral ground down to the depths. Some other things to know before we listen to the audio of the chapters. A housekeeper was actually a a position of respect. So if you were a gentleman who didn't have a wife, but you had a sister who was unmarried, you could bring her in to be your housekeeper. This would be good for her. She would have security and a roof over her head. And she'd have a position, which was not nothing. She'd have something to do, which is also not nothing. For the Americans in the room, you will hear a stepmother referred to as a mother-in-law. I'm assuming this is still normal in the UK. It's not how we uh, name 
interrelationships like that here. So I just thought I should point that out for the Americans. Uh, the word liberal in Jane Austen's day did not indicate that you voted with Jerry Brown in the 70s. It is instead a state of being generous. Somebody who is liberal with their money is somebody who would be generous with their money. And likewise, the word mean wouldn't mean that you were the Grinch. It would mean that you were stingy, that you were not liberal with your money. And that's all that is. A husband and wife referring to each other as my dear, so it's, you know, my dear Andrew, my dear Mr. Ordover, that or actually referring to your spouse as Mr. Ordover and Mrs. Ordover. This was not outside of convention. This would have been considered normal. It does, the my dear does not mean that they are any more loving than anyone else. And the calling each other by their legal terms, their, their titled terms, that doesn't indicate that they are not a loving couple. It just kind of, it was the vogue at the time. And that is where we're going to stop and switch over to listening to our chapters for the day. I'll pop in on the flip side and we can chat a little bit more about the book. But in case you are new, you should know that at the top of the show notes, you can find a phone number. And if you're on the phone app, you can tap it and call the show at 206-350-1642. That gets you to uh, basically a voicemail, which records your voice and sends it to me as an audio file. And yes, the number is a Seattle number, even though I am in Pennsylvania because the company is in Seattle. If you are outside the United States or not interested in talking on your phone, but you have a computer that has a microphone, you can go to the show notes and look in the, I think it's the right-hand margin, and you'll see a little send a message. It's a little speak pipe app, and it will take you to a page where you can record your comment that way, and it will also get sent to me, like magic. And I will then play your audio on the podcast, unless you tell me not to, in which case I won't. So here we go. Maya Daguerre reading for us Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's first novel here on Craftlet. Here we go. Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Chapter One. The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large, and their residence was at Norland Park in the centre of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. The late owner of this estate was a single man who lived to a very advanced age, and who for many years of his life had a constant companion and housekeeper in his sister. But her death, which happened ten years before his own, produced a great alteration in his home, For, to supply her loss, he invited and received into his house the family of his nephew, Mr Henry Dashwood, the legal inheritor of the Norland estate, and the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. In the society of his nephew and niece and their children, the old gentleman's days were comfortably spent. His attachment to them all increased. The constant attention of Mr and Mrs Henry Dashwood to his wishes, which proceeded not merely from interest but from goodness of heart, gave him every degree of solid comfort which his age could receive, and the cheerfulness of the children added a relish to his existence. By a former marriage, Mr Henry Dashwood had one son, 
by his present lady three daughters. The son, a steady, respectable young man, was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother, which had been large, and half of which devolved on him on his coming of age. By his own marriage likewise, which happened soon afterwards, he added to his wealth. To him, therefore, the succession to the Norland estate was not so really important as to his sister's, for their fortune, independent of what might arise to them from their father's inheriting that property, could be but small. Their mother had nothing, and their father only £7,000 in his own disposal, for the remaining moiety of his first wife's fortune was also secured to her child, and he had only a life interest in it. The old gentleman died. His will was read, and like almost every other will, gave as much disappointment as pleasure. He was neither so unjust nor so ungrateful as to leave his estate from his nephew, but he left it to him on such terms as destroyed half the value of the bequest. Mr Dashwood had wished for it more for the sake of his wife and daughters than for himself or his son, but to his son, and his son's son, a child of four years old, it was secured, in such a way as to leave himself no power of providing for those who were most dear to him, and who most needed a provision by any charge on the estate, or by any sale of its valuable woods. The whole was tied up for the benefit of this child, who, in occasional visits with his father and mother at Lawland, had so far gained on the affections of his uncle, by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children or two or three years old, an imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks and a great deal of noise, as to outweigh all the value of all the attention which for years he had received from his niece and her daughters. He meant not to be unkind, however, and as a mark of his affection for the three girls, he left them a thousand pounds apiece. Mr. Dashwood's disappointment was at first severe, but his temper was cheerful and sanguine, and he might reasonably hope to live many years, and by living economically lay by a considerable sum from the produce of an estate already large and capable of almost immediate improvement. But the fortune which had been so tardy in coming was his only one twelvemonth. He survived his uncle no longer and £10,000, including the late legacies, was all that remained for his widow and daughters. His son was sent for as soon as his danger was known, and to him Mr Dashwood recommended with all the strength and urgency which illness could command the interest of his mother-in-law and sisters. Mr John Dashwood had not the strong feelings of the rest of the family, but he was affected by a recommendation of such a nature at such a time, and he promised to do everything in his power to make them comfortable. His father was rendered easy by such an assurance, and Mr John Dashwood had then leisure to consider how much there might prudently be in his power to do for them. He was not an ill-disposed young man, unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish is to be ill-disposed, but he was in general well-respected, for he conducted himself with propriety in the discharge of his ordinary duties. Had he married a more amiable woman, he might have been made still more respectable than he was. He might even have been made amiable himself, for he was very young when he married and very fond of his wife. But Mrs John Dashwood was a strong caricature of himself, more narrow-minded and selfish. 
when he gave his promise to his father, he meditated to himself to increase the fortunes of his sisters by the present of a thousand pounds apiece. He then really thought himself equal to it. The prospect of four thousand a year in addition to his present income, besides the remaining half of his own mother's fortune, warmed his heart and made him feel capable of generosity. Yes, he would give them three thousand pounds. It would be liberal and handsome. It would be enough to make them completely easy. Three thousand pounds. He could spare so considerable a sum with little inconvenience. He thought of it all day long and for many days successively and he did not repent. No sooner was his father's funeral over than Mrs John Dashwood, without sending any notice of her intention to her mother-in-law, arrived with her child and their attendants. No one could dispute her right to come. The house was her husband's from the moment of his father's decease. But the indelicacy of her conduct was so much the greater, and to a woman in Mrs Dashwood's situation, with only common feelings, must have been highly unpleasing. But in her mind there was a sense of honour so keen, a generosity so romantic, that any offence of the kind by whomsoever given or received was to her a source of immovable disgust. Mrs John Dashwood had never been a favourite with any of her husband's family, but she had had no opportunity till the present of showing them with how little attention to the comfort of other people she could act when occasion required it. So acutely did Mrs Dashwood feel this ungracious behaviour, and so earnestly did she despise her daughter-in-law for it, that on the arrival of the latter she would have quitted the house for ever, had not the entreaty of her eldest girl induced her first to reflect on the propriety of going, and her own tender love for all her three children determined her afterwards to stay, and for their sakes avoid a breach with their brother. Eleanor, this eldest daughter, whose advice was so effectual, possessed a strength of understanding and coolness of judgment, which qualified her, though only nineteen, to be the counsellor of her mother, and enabled her frequently to counteract, to the advantage of them all, that eagerness of mind in Mrs Dashwood, which must generally have led to imprudence. She had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate and her feelings were strong, but she knew how to govern them. It was a knowledge which her mother had yet to learn, and which one of her sisters had resolved never to be taught. Marianne's abilities were in many respects quite equal to Eleanor's. She was sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows, her joys could have no moderation. She was generous, amiable, interesting. She was everything but prudent. The resemblance between her and her mother was strikingly great. Eleanor saw with concern the excess of her sister's sensibility, but by Mrs Dashwood it was valued and cherished. They encouraged each other now in the violence of their affliction. The agony of grief which overpowered them at first was voluntarily renewed, was sought for, was created again and again. They gave themselves up wholly to their sorrow, seeking increase of wretchedness in every reflection that could afford it, and resolved against ever admitting consolation in future. Eleanor too was deeply afflicted, but still she could struggle, she could exert herself, she could consult with her brother, could receive her sister-in-law on her arrival, and treat her with proper attention, and could strive to rouse her mother to similar exertion, and encourage her to similar forbearance. Margaret, the other sister, was a good-humoured, well-disposed girl, but as she had already imbibed a good deal of Marianne's romance without having much of her sense, she did not at thirteen bid fair to equal her sisters at a more advanced period of life.
Chapter 2 Mrs John Dashwood now installed herself as mistress of Norland, and her mother and sisters-in-law were degraded to the condition of visitors. As such, however, they were treated by her with quiet civility, and by her husband with as much kindness as he could feel towards anybody beyond himself, his wife and their child. He really pressed them with some earnestness to consider Norland as their home, and as no plan appeared so eligible to Mrs Dashwood as remaining there till she could accommodate herself with a house in the neighbourhood, his invitation was accepted. A continuance in a place where everything reminded her of former delight was exactly what suited her mind. In seasons of cheerfulness, no temper could be more cheerful than hers, or possess in greater degree that sanguine expectation of happiness which is happiness itself. But in sorrow she must be equally carried away by her fancy, and as far beyond consolation as in pleasure she was beyond alloy. Mrs John Dashwood did not at all approve of what her husband intended to do for his sisters. To take £3,000 from the fortune of their dear little boy would be impoverishing him to the most dreadful degree. She begged him to think again on the subject. How could he answer it to himself to rob his child, and his only child too, of so large a sum? And what possible claim could the Miss Dashwoods, who were related to him only by half-blood, which she considered as no relationship at all, have on his generosity to such large an extent? It was very well known that no affection was ever supposed to exist between the children of any man by different marriages. And why was he to ruin himself and their poor little Harry by giving all his money away to his half-sisters? "'It was my father's last request to me,' replied her husband, "'that I should assist his widow and daughters. "'He did not know what he was talking of, I dare say. Ten to one, but he was light-headed at the time. "'Had he been in his right senses, "'he could not have thought of such a thing "'as begging you to give away half your fortune from your own child.' He did not stipulate for any particular sum, my dear Fanny. He only requested me in general terms to assist them and make their situation more comfortable than it was in his power to do. Perhaps it would have been as well if he had left it wholly to myself. He could hardly suppose I should neglect them. But as he required the promise, I could do no less than give it. At least I thought so at the time. The promise, therefore, was given and must be performed. Something must be done for them whenever they leave Norland and settle in a new home. Well, then let something be done for them. But that something need not be £3,000. Consider, she added, that when the money is once parted with, it can never return. Your sisters will marry, and it will be gone for ever. If indeed it could be restored to our poor little boy. Why, to be sure, said her husband very gravely, that would make great difference. The time may come when Harry will regret that so large a sum was parted with. If he should have a numerous family, for instance, it would be a very convenient addition. To be sure it would. Perhaps, then, it would be better for all parties if the sum were diminished one half. Five hundred pounds would be a prodigious increase to their fortunes. Oh, beyond anything great! What brother on earth would do half so much for his sisters? even if really his sister's, and as it is, only half-blood. But you have such a generous spirit. I would not wish to do anything mean, he replied. One had rather on such occasions do too much than too little. No one at least can think I have not done enough for them, even themselves, they can hardly expect more. There's no knowing what they may expect, said the lady. 
but we're not to think of their expectations. The question is, what can you afford to do? Certainly, and I think I may afford to give them £500 apiece. As it is, without any addition of mine, they will each have about £3,000 on their mother's death. A very comfortable fortune for any young woman. To be sure it is, and indeed it strikes me that they can want no addition at all. They will have £10,000 divided amongst them. If they marry, they'll be sure of doing well, and if they do not, they may all live very comfortably together on the interest of £10,000. That's very true. And therefore, I do not know whether, upon the whole, it would not be more advisable to do something for their mother while she lives, rather than them. Something of the annuity kind, I mean. My sisters would feel the good effects of it as well as herself. A hundred a year would make them all perfectly comfortable. His wife hesitated a little, however, in giving her consent to this plan. To be sure, she said, it's better than parting with fifteen hundred pounds at once. But then, if Mrs Dashwood should live fifteen years, we shall be completely taken in. Fifteen years, my dear Fanny? Her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Certainly not. But if you observe, people always live forever when there's an annuity to be paid them. And she's very stout and healthy and hardly forty. An annuity is a very serious business. It comes over and over every year, and there's no getting rid of it. You're not aware of what you're doing. I have known a great deal of trouble of annuities, for my mother was clogged with the payment of three to old superannuated servants by my father's will, and it's amazing how disagreeable she found it. Twice every year these annuities were to be paid, and then there was the trouble of getting it to them, and then one of them was said to have died, and afterwards it turned out to be no such thing. My mother was quite sick of it. Her income was not her own, she said, with such perpetual claims on it, and it was the more unkind in my father, because otherwise the money would have been entirely at my mother's disposal, without any restriction whatever. It has given me such an abhorrence of annuities that I'm sure I would not pin myself down to the payment of one for all the world." It is certainly an unpleasant thing, replied Mr Dashwood, to have those kind of yearly drains on one's income. One's fortune, as your mother justly says, is not one's own. To be tied down to the regular payment of such a sum on every rent day is by no means desirable. It takes away one's independence. Undoubtedly. And after all, you have no thanks for it. They think themselves secure. You do no more than what's expected, and it raises no gratitude at all. If I were you, whatever I did should be done at my own discretion entirely. I would not bind myself to allow them anything yearly. It may be very inconvenient some years to spare a hundred or even fifty pounds from our own expenses. I believe you're right, my love. It would be better that there should be no annuity in the case. Whatever I may give them occasionally will be a far greater assistance than a yearly allowance, because they would only enlarge their style of living if they felt sure of a larger income and would not be sixpence the richer at the end of the year. It will certainly be much the best way. A present of fifty pounds now and then, I think, will prevent them ever being distressed for money, and will, I think, be amply discharging my promise to my father. To be sure it will. Indeed, to say the truth, I'm convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. The assistance he thought of, I dare say, was only such as might reasonably be expected of you. For instance, such as looking out for a comfortable small house for them, helping them to move their things, and sending them presents of fish and game and so forth whenever they're in season. 
I lay my life that he meant nothing farther. Indeed, it would be very strange and unreasonable if he did. Do but consider, my dear Mr. Dashwood, how excessively comfortable your mother-in-law and her daughters may live on the interest of seven thousand pounds, besides the thousand pounds belonging to each of the girls, which brings them in fifty pounds a year apiece. And, of course, they will pay their mother for their board out of it. Altogether, they will have five hundred a year among them. And what on earth can four women want for more than that? They will live so cheap. The housekeeping will be nothing at all. They will have no carriage, no horses, and hardly any servants. They will keep no company and can have no expenses of any kind. Only conceive how comfortable they will be. Five hundred a year? I'm sure I cannot imagine how they will spend half of it. As to your giving them more, it's quite absurd to think of it. They will be much more able to give you something. Upon my word, said Mr Dashwood, I believe you're perfectly right. My father certainly could mean nothing more by his request to me than what you say. I clearly understand it now, and I will strictly fulfil my engagement by such acts of assistance and kindness to them as you've described. When my mother removes into another house, my services shall be readily given to accommodate her as far as I can. Some little present of furniture, too, may be acceptable to them. Certainly, returned Mrs. John Dashwood. But, however, one thing must be considered. When your father and mother moved to Norland, though the furniture of Stanhill was sold, all the china plate and linen were saved, and is now left to your mother. Her house will therefore be almost completely fitted up as soon as she takes it. That is material consideration, undoubtedly. A valuable legacy indeed, and yet some of the plate would have been a very pleasant addition to our own stock here. Yes, and the set of breakfast china is twice as handsome as what belongs to this house, a great deal too handsome in my opinion for any place they can ever afford to live in. But however, so it is. Your father thought only of them, and I must say this, that you owe no particular gratitude to him, nor attention to his wishes. For we very well know that if he could, he would have left almost everything in the world to them. This argument was irresistible. It gave to his intentions whatever of decision was wanting before, and he finally resolved that it would be absolutely unnecessary, if not highly indecorous, to do more for the widow and children of his father than such kind of neighbourly acts as his own wife pointed out. Was that not... A brilliant piece of writing, going from, well, I think I'll, I'll give them 3000 a year, they'll have money, they won't have to worry about a thing, to, well, you know, every once in a while I'll send them a piece of fish. Wow, wow, Fanny, that wife, what an utter nightmare she is. <sighs> now, she was, she was absolutely within her legal rights when she moved to Norland, when she took over the house. The house and its contents had been left to her husband. She is absolutely, she should actually show up at the house and take control. That part's fine. But, you know, while you're doing that, you should also probably remember that the man who used to be the man of the house just died. He's your husband's father. And now the wife is there mourning and you're just La-di-da, la-di-da. Yes, Fanny, not my favorite character. I mean, she's awesome as a bad guy kind of thing, as an antagonist, but I wouldn't want to go have a beer with her at all, ever. 
her husband, before she got her hooks into him, her husband might have actually been pleasant because at the beginning, before she starts talking him out of it, he's he's trying to do this the right thing. Sort of. Because back in the first chapter, before we really got going with Fanny and her her evil machinations, there was this line that I didn't pick up the first couple times, but it says, when he's first thinking about the promise he made to his father and 3,000 pounds, 3,000 pounds he could spare so considerable a sum with little inconvenience. He thought of it all day long and for many days successively, and he did not repent. It's an interesting construction there. He's made the decision he can spare the money. He knows that it will not financially be a burden for him. It's not going to inconvenience him. But that is followed with, he thought of it all day long and for many days successively. This was not off his mind for days, plural. So it kind of shows that he is having a hard time reconciling himself to this plan of action, although it is, by anyone's account, a very nice thing to do and probably the right thing to do. And I thought it did a lovely job of showing us right up front what kind of sense of humor Jane Austen has. Because after talking about that, you know, that he's thinking about it, thinking about it all the time, all the time, it's running through his brain. But he did not repent. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't turn his back on them. It's worthy of note that he decided to stick to his guns. And I, I just love that. It's not the funny haha, it's the funny interior smile. There was another bit that I thought was good Jane Austen humor when she she was talking about how the the three girls were much beloved of their grandfather or grand uncle technically but that the old man had been taken by the child so daddy dashwood's son with fanny they have the son little son little bitty son 2 or 3 years old but the great grand uncle granddaddy with a fortune he's taken with a little kid and so he doesn't have a whole hard time just leaving everything to him and it wasn't uncommon to leave everything to a kid or a grandkid just to make sure that the money stayed in the family and that those children were well taken care of but Jane Austen hides a little jab in here saying the whole of the estate was tied up for the benefit of this child, who, in occasional visits with his father and mother at Norland, had so far gained on the affections of his uncle by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children of two or three years old, an imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks, and a great deal of noise, as to outweigh all the value of all the attention which, for years, he had received from his niece and her daughters. That little middle part about the kids, children are two or three, their imperfect articulation, they're wanting to have their own way, cunning tricks, a lot of noise. This is, I, all I can see in my head is the sign that I caught at a coffee house a few years back that said, untended children will be given an espresso and a puppy. <laughs> and you did not see any untended children in that establishment. And that seems like, that seems like Jane Austen. She would have loved that. 
That being said, while she did not have any children, she did have nieces and nephews who she spent a lot of time with, and they always said she was a lovely aunt. So maybe maybe she was hiding her dark side from them when they were young. One of the things that I find most difficult to translate to a modern setting is the money. Because not only is the money worth different amounts now, but what you can do with the money now and what you could do with your money back then were actually opposite. Goods are cheap for us and people, employees, not so cheap. Back then, people were cheap with all of the ugly ramifications in that statement, including the you know, having to keep your old servants on an annuity because you kind of owed it to them, you rich jerk. Fanny, oh man. So people were cheap, but goods were rather expensive, especially things like linen, table settings, which is plate, and china. Those are expensive. Furniture is expensive. And moving would have been expensive because even though people are cheap, hiring the horses and the carts required to move you and your stuff, that's expensive. Now, when Mama Dash would moved before the book ever started, they actually sold the furniture at the old estate because it was easier than moving it. That's how difficult moving was. That's, that's a lot of difficult. And I've seen various algorithms for how much money back then was worth compared to today. And what it comes down to is 3,000 pounds seems to have been a lot of money. So when we hear kind of casual reference to, oh, well, they could live on 3,000 pounds, which doesn't sound like much to us, it's really like 150,000 pounds. Or in American dollars, it would be uh, equivalent to roughly a quarter of a million dollars, right? You could live comfortably off of that, right? I, I, think, I think all of us sharing it could probably live relatively comfortably off of it. But when you take it down to 500 pounds a year, that gets you down to between 27 and 28,000 pounds a year, or in American dollars, about $40,000, give or take, which, which is, for the way the economy has been going since 2008, that's quite a tidy sum when each of you has 500 pounds to live on, and you've got a, a family of four. But that is a sum that would absolutely not include servants, horses, carriages, room for people to come and stay in, a house that was made out of stone. I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications for what that income would change if you were going from an estate the size of which $250,000 American would have gotten you to something that you could afford on, on $40,000. It's a big difference back then and today. The other thing I found interesting in reading the book rather than watching the Emma Thompson movie is the mother character. I think whether you have read Pride and Prejudice yourself or whether you have just been paying attention when other people talk about it, you've probably heard some jokes made about the mother, Elizabeth Bennett's mother, in Pride and Prejudice, and not without cause. She's a very funny character. But Mrs. Dashwood doesn't appear to be her. She's not a ninny. She's not a whiner yet in the way that we would expect Mrs. Bennett to be a whiner at a moment like this. But her 
emotional state, her, her personality, is not being allied with Eleanor, the sensible one. It's being allied with Marianne, which means we have a triangle situation here. We've got two, the Marianne and the Mrs. playing against Eleanor, which is an interesting kind of power struggle, especially when you consider that Eleanor is only 19 and Marianne is 16. The other thing I liked about the way Marianne is being introduced to us is she is also not a ninny. She's not the dumb ingenue. She's as smart as, younger, but as smart as Eleanor. But she has this extra layer of emotion, kind of pure, raw, romantic, capital R emotion, like her mother does. Eleanor doesn't have that. Or... If Eleanor does have that, she has found a way to put some restraint on it. And so there we are. We have our plot. We have our main characters. We have a conflict. And next week, we will pick up where we left off with Marianne and Eleanor and the Dashwood family in their unfortunate situation that they find themselves in in Norland. If you have been listening to podcasts since before 2014, you may be interested in getting one of our t-shirts. It says on the front, PLSBS. It has a little asterisk and it goes to the back and says, podcast listener since before serial with the Craftlet book on the front. So those are available to you and the tour. We still have a couple of seats left if you are interested in going to the Lake District and more. Bronte Family Parsonage and Manchester and go to see Working Mill from North and South. If you're interested, call Diane. You can get a brochure with all of the information and her number by going to craftlit.com and clicking on the cute sheepy picture in the left-hand sidebar. All right, that's it for me. Thank you so much for listening to the first two chapters. I hope you have a great week. I hope I do too. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.lipson.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Cravlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>